the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's podcast episode, we have Sarah Keyes, CPA, CA, and CEO at ESG Global Advisors, Inc. Sarah is an ESG and climate change expert with over a decade of work experience as a thought leader, consultant, facilitator, and auditor. She regularly presents to executive teams and board of directors on the link between ESG and climate change with financial and operational performance and long-term value. Sarah helps her clients establish ESG and climate change strategies that align with strategic priorities, enabling effective integration with existing risk and strategy processes. Prior to joining ESG Global Advisors, Sarah was a principal at CPA Canada where she produced research, thought leadership and guidance for companies to integrate climate change considerations into business strategy, risk management, governance, and reporting. Previously, Sarah held senior roles at PwC and MNP working with the energy and mining sectors. She is the academic director and lead instructor for the Institute for Corporate Directors, ICDs, Board Oversight of Climate Change Program. She also facilitates a module on ESG and sustainable finance in the ICD's Director Education Program. She has a Bachelor of Commerce from McGill University, ISO 14064 Part 3 Certification for Greenhouse Gas Verifications, and received the 2018 Emerging Leader Award from CPA Ontario. Now let's get on to the episode with Sarah. Welcome back, Dave and John. Good to be here. (laughs) Every week it just gets worse and worse with the responses. (laughs) (laughs) Today we are joined again by Sarah Keyes, CPA, CA, and CEO at ESG Global Advisors Incorporated for an episode all about industry and ESG. Sarah, thank you for joining us again today. My pleasure. To kick off this episode, what types of industry are implementing ESG? For instance, is it public, private, is it manufacturing, transportation? It's a loaded question. So I would say just about everyone. Uh, And we talked about this on the first episode, but it bears worth repeating again. Uh, I think traditionally folks have thought of ESG as only relevant to high greenhouse gas emitting sectors. Of course, we know uh, that's very much so a myth. Uh, So it has definitely been a a topic of pressure and focus for public companies, given that they deal with institutional investors, shareholder proposals, uh, proxy votes, and they deal with the securities law requirements for public companies. They have increasingly been under the spotlight when it comes to ESG. So typically you'll see some of the largest public companies in some of the uh, biggest natural resource sectors being the leaders. So if you think about oil and gas, you're going to think of a a Suncor, a Synovus, a Shell, uh, being some of the biggest leaders. But what we're starting to see is some of the small and medium enterprises who are publicly traded uh, developing ESG approaches, strategies, and clear reporting and disclosure frameworks. This is a bit of a newer trend. So it's gone from being just the biggest companies that are publicly traded into some of the smaller companies uh, that are even on the TSXV. So for example, I'm working with a number of different uh, small mining companies who are still in the exploration phase of operations who want to get their ESG house in order before they move into production and graduate up to the TSX. 
but it's not just high emitting sectors. We're seeing companies across sectors, all types of public companies facing pressure on ESG. So you'll see increasingly fast food companies, for example, being asked about where they're sourcing beef from, uh, how they're treating local customers. What are they doing about the sugary drinks and the high fat content of their foods? Um, they're increasingly facing these same types of questions, you know, the likes of McDonald's, for example. And again, it's bleeding into small medium enterprises. But as I mentioned, this is not just a public company issue. This is also a, a private company issue. And I mentioned previously, but I'll just restate, there are three reasons private companies are paying attention. The first is just the better performance. They see the link to lower risk, uh, better access to capital, and overall improved operational efficiencies. So there's some cost savings there. So why wouldn't they uh, jump onto that? But the second reason is they often sit in the supply chain of public companies. So they're either providing goods and services or they are indeed their customers. And therefore, they're starting to get asked about ESG in the context of procurement and servicing their customers. The last but not least is really the reason we see more private companies around access to ability to attract and retain strong talent. So the human capital angle. But interestingly as well, I think private companies are starting to see the financial implications of ESG risks and opportunities when they go to get debt. We're seeing more and more credit rating agencies considering ESG risks in their creditworthiness assessments of companies. And I'll give you an example. In April 2020, uh, Moody's issued a report that articulated that 33% of their credit rating changes were directly linked to ESG issues. So this is now also relevant for companies seeking debt. We also see a lot of opportunities happening on the debt side. So I mentioned in the first episode that banks are increasingly being held to account for the lending that they are doing and the concept of finance emissions. But it's not only a risk story, right? Private sector has a lot of opportunity here because all of the large banks have established these pools of sustainable finance. So they've said, we have these big commitments. For example, a lot of the big six banks in Canada have $100 billion plus commitments to issue sustainable finance loans. What these loans are, I mean, it can include green bonds, which we've heard lots about uh, over the years. So those are kind of project proceeds that are used to invest in green initiatives. Increasingly, there are transition bonds where we're helping higher carbon economies, uh, higher carbon companies rather, uh, transition to lower carbon by accessing pools of capital to do so. But the area we really see growing that's very exciting is in sustainability linked loans or sustainability linked bonds. This is where an organization can set ESG related targets. So it's not just environmental like green uh, and transition bonds, it's broader. And they can set targets and have their interest rate actually pegged to the achievement of those targets. So if they outperform on their ESG objectives, they are then eligible for a reduction in the interest rate on that loan. So this is a pretty compelling reason uh, for private companies to be paying attention as well. To tack on to that question, actually, I was wondering, do you find any particular industry kind of against implementing ESG? At this stage, I would say everyone has woken up to it. I think historically, I, I observed a lot of resistance beyond those who were not in high emitting sectors. So, oh, we're uh, we're an insurance company. This is not necessarily applicable to us. Uh, you know, well, we're not exposed to a carbon tax per se, so we don't think ESG is relevant. Well, do you have employees? 
do you have customers? Do you operate in local communities? Uh, does your reputation matter, right? So you start to see that the pandemic has fully shifted this sentiment. So pre-pandemic, I spent a lot of my time explaining why why ESG is relevant, why it's important, why you need to address it and get ahead, and what are some of the opportunities if you do. Fast forward the last you know, 18 months, the conversation is completely shifted. It's no longer why, it's what do I need to do and how do I do it? So I'm really encouraged to see way less resistance uh, across uh, all sectors. That's great to hear. Sarah, um, <clears throat> kind of interesting. There's uh, two of the clients that we're working, we work with, are undertaking, are involved in the sustainability linked loans. So uh, it's happening, and it's uh, it's 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 happening fairly quickly. So um, that's that's quite interesting. When when uh, the last episode you talked about uh, one of the most important things to do is just to start uh, ESG. And so the question I have for you is. How would a company first, what's the first step they should take when implementing ESG? I think that's the million dollar question that I'm being asked quite a lot these days, as I said, right? Moving from why into what and how. So the first question is, what do I need to do? And then the next question is, how do I do that? <laughs> so the what, um, definitely I would say the first step in implementing ESG within an organization is conducting a formal ESG materiality assessment. The objective of this is to identify the ESG factors that have the greatest potential to impact the organization's value over the short, medium, and long term. So actually taking that inventory. And I think what's really important in the how do you do this, I mean, materiality assessments are always an art, not a science. But what's really, really important is that they are sector specific and company specific. And what do I mean by that? So I think we need to recognize ESG as a whole tends to be really unique to the sector in which you're operating and the geographies where you're playing. Uh, yes, you need to think about local laws, rules, and regulations, but you also are gonna have cultural elements around uh, how to engage with and build relationships with local communities, indigenous people, and so on. So it's really important to seek out those sector-specific and geography-specific inputs as you think about which factors might be material for your organization. We often help clients with benchmarking against their peers. That's usually one of the biggest starting points as an input to a materiality assessment. What are our peers who are leading on ESG? Which topics are they talking about? And do they apply to us? And so that's part of the process. The other piece that I think is really important, if it is a public company, if your investors have already asked you for ESG information, this is a gold mine of valuable input to your ESG materiality assessment. What are the types of questions they're asking you about? What are the issues they're focusing on? And what are the types of metrics that they'd like to see you performing on? So finally, I would say you gather all of these big inputs, and then you're going to want to evaluate and rank the financial impacts of these potential factors. You're going to want to think about what's the impact that this could have on our company both in terms of operating and financial performance, but also regulation and, of course, reputation. And what's the likelihood these are going to occur? And when you're thinking about the likelihood, I think it's really important to look across timeframes. ESG issues can manifest really quickly if they're not managed, or they can creep up on you slowly. So it's important to always be taking into consideration short, medium, and long-term timeframes. So this is a continuous thought process. It's not a project that you look at it, you take a snapshot, and then you're done. It, it, it's an ongoing thought process that's required for 
organizations, the way you describe it. My next question for you is, uh, what are the critical actions to sustain ESG as far as the value for our company? Can you share with us what those might be? Yeah, Dave, I, I want to reiterate your point. <clears throat> the ESG materiality assessment is not a one and done. Uh, like assessing any material factors for your business, you're going to want to update that at least annually. And that's definitely best practice is for management to take some ownership and say, okay, we've done this, we formalized the process, now we're going to embed it into our annual strategic planning and so on. So using the results of the ESG materiality assessment can help to drive the critical actions around ESG by establishing a formal strategy that now responds to your most material ESG factors. So what's really important here is now you go through the process of looking at how do we govern and oversee ESG factors, including updating that materiality assessment every year so that we're sure that our strategy is focusing on the right ESG factors that could impact our organization's value and are of interest to our stakeholders. The second piece is really coming up with where do we want to make strategic commitments? So we've identified where are the factors. What do we want to commit to? And what are we going to do in terms of metrics and targets to support the achievement of those commitments? So that's really the meaningful piece is then assigning and further disaggregating some of those kind of motherhood type statements that you see in ESG reports and on websites into practical implementation plans. And as investors get more sophisticated, they are increasingly saying to companies, it's great that you've made a commitment to climate change. You've said you're going to achieve net zero. How exactly do you plan to do that? So companies are now being pushed a little bit more uh, to think about how they're going to report on progress. And last but certainly not least, <clears throat> for an ESG strategy to really be effective, and we talked about this in the first episode, it needs to be integrated across existing departments and functions and existing decision-making processes. So thinking about making sure ESG factors that you identified as material are captured in your enterprise risk management system. Thinking about the ESG factors that are of strategic priorities for the organization and making sure we're allocating resources to achieving those implementation plans through annual budgeting, strategic planning, and even capital allocation plans that get approved by management and the board. But the overall theme here at the end of the day, and I think it's coming through, is the tone at the top. For an ESG strategy <clears throat> to meaningfully be implemented, Management and the board have to be 100% in on this, and they have to continue to reinforce the importance, not just one time when the strategy is released, but every single year as they meet with employees and do annual review cycles. Well, what a lot of similarities to the, the storyline that we, we are encouraging our customers. I just have one last uh, follow-up, Sarah, and that is, do a lot of customers think that ESG is expensive and so they shy away from it is that a misnomer in in companies yeah i think it's really interesting often here i want to do esg but i'm not sure i have the budget for it and i think what's really fascinating about it is there's this idea that for some reason esg is being suggested uh, without ever needing a business case i think the business case for esg has become clearer and clearer over the years um, and so increasingly, we encourage our clients to actually put it through that business case process. So what is the return on those types of investments? For example, I work with a, a company that is a contractor to mining companies. They, they contract out drills and they're specialized drills that they operate at some of the largest mining companies. They operate in 20 countries. I think fundamentally for them, 
there's an obvious and intuitive opportunity as their drills reach the end of life to upgrade to a higher efficiency engine. Does it cost more? Yes, slightly more at the outset when they make that initial capital investment. But what they're finding very quickly when they calculate the payback period is that the savings on costs from the fuel are quickly paying for themselves. So subjecting it to that same rigor is a critically important piece of getting management and the board on side. I'd like to sort of preface my question with talking about something that occurs over here in the UK. And it ties into something you were talking about earlier. We, I think in UK, I would have said some time ago in the EU, but I have to say now in the UK and the EU, we perhaps have favoured, should we say, regulation and legislation to make these happen more than in North America. So that, that's part of the background. Now, you mentioned about TCFD, and we're one of the countries that's talking about possibly making it mandatory to use TCFD requirements in company reporting. But we already have um, a relatively recently a system introduced called Streamlined Energy and Carbon Reporting, SECR, and this is something where if you are a large entity, typically over 250 employees, you have to have a report on your carbon footprint, your energy use and the actions that you're taking in your annual financial report. So far, so good. This has been running for a couple of years. What we have found in dealing with people is that we get two flavours of people looking at this. One is what a wonderful opportunity. We need to grasp this with both hands and see what we can do about it. And the other one who, I just want to be compliant. What's the minimum I can do to comply? So with that background, my question is, are we seeing two populations within the ESG world of implementers, those who want to do the minimum to get away with it, and those that are embracing it as life-changing and business-changing? I would say absolutely, John. <clears throat> and I think the interesting thing about your question is I could probably say that there are compliance-driven and then there are value-driven organizations in general, right? So when yeah. we think things like employee health and safety, right? There's always been all sorts of laws and regulations around that uh, for many sectors. And some will embed it into their core purpose and you feel that that mission of safety just bleeding through everything that they do in their corporate culture. Others, it's, yes, this is something we have to do. It's important for our industry. We do it and that, you know, that's not necessarily embedded into our core focus. I would say ESG much the same. Uh, so you're starting to see more stratification between those that are leaders and moving more aggressively well beyond compliance. And those that are saying, I'm still trying to figure out this landscape. I'm not sold. I'll do what I have to do, uh, but I'm not going to go much further until this wild west of all the ESG regulations settles down and I understand what it means for me. One of the things I think is really interesting that I, you know, when we work with clients and we take them through establishing ESG strategies, that is one of the first conversations we have after doing an ESG materiality assessment. We will put together an outline of what industry standard means, industry leading, and then leading edge. And we'll define it specific to the sector and the geographies where the company is operating and say relative to your peers, relative to what we've looked at, here's the bare minimum you can do. And here's what industry leading and leading edge look like, right? <clears throat> industry leading is usually 
you know, leading relative to peers that are of a similar size. So if they're a small medium enterprise, they wouldn't be comparing themselves to the, the largest entities, but others, you know, at their size. But where we see industry leading, it's regardless of size. It's that you're actually trailblazing the ESG aspirations of the sector. You're setting a whole new bar, right? And what's really fascinating about it is when you put that in front of a client, nobody says they want to be industry standard. So when you actually have a conversation with a management team about the nuance between what it takes to go from industry standard to industry leading to, to the leading edge, they often realize, oh, I don't know that I want to be striving for just the lowest bar um, because to get to the next level, in order to beat out my peers, they, they kind of get that competition hat on and they start to realize that if their peers are doing it, there's probably really good reason uh, from a performance and value perspective. So that, that's one of the things I think is evolving in North America, um, but it's, it's, a slow, it's a slow journey for sure. Do you think it's possible that when you, I mean, I'm not going to ask you the embarrassing question, which is if if a client comes to you and says, I want compliance and nothing else, I'm not going to say to you then turn them away or anything like that. But if you're working with somebody who's just say, you know, oh, I think industry standard, do you find that in the process, perhaps they then become more enthusiastic with it and then perhaps move on from from just that basic industry standard? Yes, <clears throat> no, absolutely. And I think that's part of, you know, that's part of our opportunity as advisors to senior management teams and the board is to help them connect the dots on what feel like a variety of ad hoc requests and help them connect the dots and stand back and understand why this is important to their overall market positioning and achievement of their overall strategy. So tying in the relevant ESG factors and meeting them where they are in terms of their own corporate priorities and objectives. So for example, actually saying, how might the issue of climate change impact our ability to continue to grow our oil and gas business, right? It's a strategic conversation. Yeah. What I would say is more and more, it's also an educational process. So I often say with my clients, uh, we're doing a knowledge transfer as well, right? So you've got uh, a lot of people around the table who are coming from, you know, in, in an ideal world, we get an ESG committee with representation from across different departments. Once you level set on that knowledge, you'll see that people's level of ambition and excitement starts to change. So often we've, we've had many clients start out saying, we think we want just to do an industry standard approach. When we take them through those facilitated workshops and actually talk about the potential opportunities, they usually get pretty excited about capitalizing on those opportunities and want to step up their ambition. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Now, my, my next question is, is slightly messed up with what we've talked about before, but you know how I'm going to put it. You, you've made it clear that it's not a single department activity. So we've got that on the table. I think you've also made it clear that you've got to have C-suite commitment to ESG, that without that, it's not going to happen. So, okay, so taking that into account, um, is there typically, two part question, is there typically one department that takes the lead that's probably the easy question. The, the second the follow up on that is, how do you encourage multi-department or multidisciplinary involvement in ESG? Great question. So you're right. Uh, the first part is easy. So there isn't really one single department that you always see having responsibility. 
And I would say that best practice is for the CEO to have overall accountability on ESG. But what's important, what we often see is that many companies will opt to establish internal ESG committees that have representation across those key management functions. So investor relations, finance, legal, HR, and operations. What's really fascinating on a variety of scores is, is two things. So first of all, I would have thought, you know, this is extra work for folks, right? So now they're being asked to participate in a new committee. And what I'm finding is quite the opposite. There is this thirst to have input into the company's ESG strategy. And I think it's a little bit fear-based at points, which is, well, we don't want the company creating some ESG strategy that's not going to work for our operations or that's not going to fit in with our HR performance plans. It's not going to fit with our risk appetite in finance, right? So these people are actually, I want to be at the table, right? They're putting up their hand and saying, I want to come to the table. But this comes back to one of the earlier points that I mentioned, John. We've got a whole bunch of folks who've never spoken the language of ESG coming together for the first time. And so a lot of the outset of our work when we're doing ESG strategies is that level setting, that education. And once everyone gets on the same page, uh, it's really where the magic happens. But the second piece of this is, you know, I often find that where sustainability or CSR departments have existed in the past, they tend to be the champion for this work. They hold a lot of the institutional knowledge and history about how the company has focused on priorities, why it has focused there, and what the results have been. So they're often a really key resource in this. Uh, where they bring that historical knowledge, context, and key learnings, and they add a tremendous amount of value to the ESG strategy process. So I would say of those interdisciplinary groups, we often see the traditional sustainability or CSR function taking a leadership role. Yeah, it's interesting there, because one of the things we've referred to years back when we're talking about effective energy management, we've always said we want to identify it as part of the corporate DNA, not something that's existing siloed to one side. And that's still a challenge, I, I feel. And I, I do wonder whether we are going to get companies who will appoint, appoint a lone soldier for ESG and go, right, we've done that. We've got somebody appointed to it. We don't necessarily resource them. But I guess for investors and other observers, looking at the disclosures and that should probably tell you whether that is the model that they're using. And then that in itself tells you whether they're really engaging with the process. Exactly. So that's why you see so many investors focusing first on the governance structure. What right. are the accountabilities at the executive level? How are those being trickled down into the functional departments? Uh, how is information being reported up to management yeah. and then how is the board overseeing it? So increasingly, absolutely, we're seeing uh, investors pushing companies for a more integrated approach. I think the other uh, danger of trying to or, you know, kind of establish just one person and hand it to one person is that idea that, you know, the solutions that companies need to have to meaningfully address ESG uh, need to be integrated. So that person's going to have an incredible uphill battle trying to speak six different yes. languages to finance, HR, and legal. Yep. And, you know, I just want to make one last point, which is often I find, you know, the, the traditional sustainability and CSR departments, um, this is a huge opportunity to elevate them to the C-suite. And this is a massive opportunity 
to help them. This is often what I find my role is when I work with my clients. They have these incredible nuggets of wisdom. They know what they want to do. They know why they focus there. I act as a translator into the language of the C-suite and the board, helping them understand how this connects to financial operational performance and value, which is not traditionally kind of the function that that sustainability or CSR department has played. So there's a huge opportunity as well um, to elevate some of these historical functions that have played such a foundational role in the space. Yeah, that's interesting. Sure. Thank you. It just seems to me there's so many uh, synergies in the field you're in, we're doing. And, and But is it true that effectively management by seeing other people involved, they can see future leaders in their company on how they respond. So it, it, it gives them a view of maybe a lens in their organization that maybe they hadn't seen before. And, and there's a great opportunity for those individuals that have the passion and the interest to be able to show a senior management because sometimes they don't have that opportunity to, to, you know, there's so many buffers in organizations that they have an opportunity to be in front of them. So it sounds like a great opportunity for, uh, for both the senior management, but also the employees within the organization to take I would, advantage. I would totally echo that, Dave, and I'll give you, I'll, I'll just give you a quick anecdotal example from one of my clients. So we often will work with all sorts of different departments and functions and all that kind of thing when we're developing ESG strategies. And we've been working with uh, a large oil sands company out in Alberta for a number of years. And this year, we really made some big strategic improvements to their ESG reporting. So much so uh, that management and the board really wanted to be actively involved and review it and approve it, which is great because that's best practice. And what, what we found when we were debriefing on the project was that this individual who had never been asked to go in and, and speak to the board of directors, their sustainability advisor, was able to go in, you know, gets a slot on the board of directors agenda and gets that kind of also personal career exposure. And this is such a hardworking individual that it was honestly one of those things for me that really it brought the whole ESG thing into perspective, you know, a young woman who was being elevated within the organization for her leadership. So absolutely, I, I think it's an incredible way for management to identify a young and upcoming talent. Sarah, this has been an informative follow-up to our last episode on ESG basics. To end off our conversation, what is the biggest takeaway you can give our listeners from this episode? For instance, what is the most important piece of this episode for industry beginners to start their journey in the ESG realm? Wonderful. So I would say my biggest takeaway uh, for listeners from this episode is that in order to get started, the first thing you need to do is to conduct that ESG materiality assessment. So thinking about the ESG factors that matter to your organization, as well as your stakeholders, and thinking about how they might manifest in terms of the impacts to the company over the short, medium, and long term. Getting started is the hardest part. Once you do that, you're going to be in a great position to actually develop that, that strategy and set some metrics and targets and move forward with your reporting and actual implementation. Sarah, thank you again for coming on to our podcast. We really appreciate your time and knowledge. Dave, any and jo- Dave and John, any final comments? I this was packed full. Both episodes was packed full of lots of knowledge. And uh, Lysandra, I think you said it best. Like this will be something that I think our listeners may want to listen to several times because there is so much content that will be very helpful. So Sarah, thank you very much for for that. I really appreciate it. John, your thoughts? I just think that it's interesting. As I said, I'm a certified management consultant. One of the things that struck me is 
involvement, commitment and everything else is what's needed in any corporate improvement activity and arguably ESG is no, not dissimilar from that. But I just throw one in and it's a conversation we were having the other day. One of the personal benefits that somebody might get from ESG is when they go home and their children say, well, you work for a big polluting company. What are you doing to save the planet? And then they can actually say, I'm actively involved in ESG and we're doing this, this and this. And hey, go and have a look at the company website. You can see what we're doing. And so there can be some real personal benefit from it. Agreed. Thank you all for your time and have a great week. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. See you next week.